As has become one of the inside jokes on these interviews, we come to one of those super sciencey episodes that strain the intellect to understand the depths of the innovation at hand. When we met up with Thomas Crawford at his lab at the Smart State Center for Experimental Nanoscale Physics at the University of South Carolina, we found ourselves wholly out of our comfort zone. Everywhere you looked was something foreign and technical. Algorithms on whiteboards, hard drives in various states of deconstruction scattered throughout, equipment with lights and buttons that hide what their true intentions may be. And then we met with our innovator, and this is what he had to say. I'm Kim Chris, Director of SC Tech and Cybersecure SC at the South Carolina Council on Competitiveness. And I'm Joseph Nutter, co-founder of Design Sensory and PopViz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on business and creativity, entrepreneurship and leadership, failure and growth, and so much more. My name is Thomas Crawford, and I'm a professor of physics at the University of South Carolina. So this is, uh, this is my laboratory in the um, Smart State Center for Experimental Nanoscale Physics at the University of South Carolina. We call this our metrology laboratory because here is where we do a lot of measurement development. And so we develop new measurements to measure advanced materials here. But of course, Thomas's story doesn't start here in this lab. My story sort of begins with getting a PhD in physics. I did my graduate work at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I had a fellowship to work at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is also known as NIST, which is uh, the standards agency for the United States. And they keep the time for the US. They have the atomic clock. And so this is out in Boulder. They also did a lot of work to support local industry there in Colorado. And the magnetic recording industry had a big presence in the Boulder area between Storage Tech and Mac Store and Seagate and so forth. So we were getting involved with the local industry. And there was a disk drive company called Quantum Corporation and ended up doing a summer internship there. And so that's how I got started in magnetic recording. I graduated with my PhD. I did a postdoc at NIST for a year. And then Seagate decided to start a research division literally from scratch. The catch was it was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So uh, halfway through my postdoc, I left and became a research staff member at Seagate working out in, in Pittsburgh. And so the family and I moved out there and uh, spent six years sort of building a research center from scratch, which was a really unique experience. About six years into it, though, it became clear that you know, my interest was much more fundamental and I wanted to interact more with students. And I decided to make, uh, try to make the jump to academia from industry. I had never wanted to do academia. I was always interested more in research than I was in teaching. But I think I had this realization that teaching actually helps your research and vice versa, and that the two can be connected in a way that I had never conceived of. So maybe it was just part of my own maturation process. But anyway, I decided to um, make that jump. And uh, fortunately, there was a, this new program in South Carolina that was called the Smart State Program. And they had recruited a famous physicist 
physics professor from IBM and I was his first recruit. And I think he was comfortable with Seagate and me being in industry because he had been a former IBM staff member. So he convinced me to come here and, uh, and the, you know, that's how I got here. The Smart State program is going to be a major focus of Thomas's story moving forward. So the Smart State program, as I understand it, was a program to bring professors to the University of South Carolina, set them up with an endowment that was able to create a center of excellence in specific areas. And so our area is nanoscale physics. And so we have a team of professors. I think we have something like six or seven professors in the center, all focused on advanced materials and, and nanotechnology. And, and part of that mission is to create knowledge and part of it's to create applications that could uh, lead to better jobs and bright futures for folks in South Carolina. So what is the problem that Thomas was trying to solve and how did Smart State help? The big thing at the time was the promise of nanotechnology and nanotechnology means things on the same size as the disk drive media that I had been involved with and I came here to be part of the Smart State Center for this experimental nanoscale technology or experimental nanoscale physics I think was the name of the center. It is still the name of the center. Coming from the disk drive industry the question was how can I let leverage that experience and do something in the nanotechnology arena. And so I came up with this idea of what if I use the disk drive to actually do nanoscale things other than store data. And in particular, you know, we had known about a technique of using magnetic particles to create pictures of domain patterns from magnets. I mean, think about high school demonstration where you take a compass needle and put iron filings on it, you get this pattern of the magnetic fields. So the idea was to scale that down to the size of these nanograins and see if we could actually build nanoparticles and control where they went using magnetic forces. And so that was a way to leverage the experience with the disk drive. And what I had found was, it's very interesting, in the whole community of nanotechnology, the disk drive was already a nanotechnology, but most people outside of the magnetic recording industry didn't know this. They just assumed, okay, it stores data, but the fact that it stored it in a way that was a nanotechnology wasn't widely known. So it was kind of a unique um, thing to say, hey, let's use this existing nanotechnology to create other nanotechnologies or as a platform. And what was really interesting is the original proposal was actually a collaboration with a his historian of technology because this idea that the disk drive industry was able to scale its technology to the, to the nano regime without lots of people knowing about it was sort of a unique concept of siloing where people in the technology get so focused, they don't know what's going on outside, but neither do the people outside the silo know what's going on in it. So I think that was the first proposal we had was to do the work and communicate this fact that the people outside weren't aware of what was going on. So that unique twist on it is what got us our first proposal, I think, uh, funded. The equipment the company needed to even make a prototype or acquire not just a lot of the things in this laboratory, but some very expensive equipment that was part of the Smart State Center's overall equipment set. So the ability to have space in the center to use the center equipment was really critical for the company. And the university's willingness to provide that was absolutely critical to the company's success. He's relocated to South Carolina, has been given access to materials, labs, and equipment, and now he has grant funding. What next? I had this grant to fund this work on magnetic assembly using the disk drive. 
It was funded by the National Science Foundation. And one of the things that I found to be true at, here at USC is we have really great undergraduate students as well as graduate students. And I happen, I happen to have a couple of really, really brilliant undergraduates. And one of them came in and he was trying to work with the nanoparticles and he was assembling them into patterns on the disk drive, which was this idea from how to use the, the disk drive as a nanotechnology. He found this material that he ordered online that is basically Elmer's glue. And he found that if he put the Elmer's glue over the nanoparticles, he could use a piece of scotch tape and actually peel them off the disk drive. And they came off, all the nanoparticles came off attached to the Elmer's glue and they kept their pattern. And so he was able to transfer this nanoscale precision pattern from the surface of the drive where the particles had been assembled and, and then had them stand alone on this piece of scotch tape. And that transfer process, we published that together, but he was the one who came up with that. What's interesting is he went on, got his bachelor's degree. He went on to work for a local optics company up in Greenville, South Carolina, and he they were trying to pattern the surface of fiber optic fibers and he had the idea of using this technology to pattern it. So he called up and said, hey, can you give me some of this stuff so I can try this for the fiber optic patterning? And what I said was, well, maybe it's time for us to commercialize this idea and we can just sell it to you, the things you need, rather than giving you the way to make it. That's outside of what you're probably gonna be able to do at this company. So maybe it's time for us to start a company to make these pattern nanoparticles for that market and any other markets that might exist. Innovation breeds invention, which leads to commercialization. Thankfully, Thomas had support from the university on the commercialization front. Around this same time, the university was encouraging faculty to start companies and to go after funding that would be sort of for R&D, these so-called small business innovative research companies. So the university was encouraging us to do this. We had this idea, and so with the help from the University Technology Commercialization Office, we actually got support from a local attorney who incorporated uh, you know, this company, we called it MagAssemble. Uh, and MagAssemble was born to provide these patterns and, and ultimately we would try to supply this company in Greenville with them and then anyone else that we could get interested as well. And uh, the university had hired a local consultant who was an expert in getting these kinds of grants and I got connected with him and we wrote the first grant together and off we went. Seems like smooth sailing from that point, right? Well, it's not always so easy to develop a marketable, scalable product. So what happened is, you know, we got near the end of the second grant and we didn't have that killer product to sell. And we had gone to a number of competitions where we had presented our work. And it was one of these problems where we didn't have the scale to deliver. You know, if one of the different things we were aiming at had worked, we would have had to scale very rapidly. But you need this combination of the right product, but also not, you need to have something that has value without needing to deliver a million in the first month. And so we were kind of stuck in between these two extremes. And we started partnering with another South Carolina startup called Certimo. And we got involved with them and they introduced to us to a bunch of their customers. And we were working specifically on this idea of making better diffraction gratings that could be replicated and hitting size targets and things like that. And we found one company actually out in the West somewhere out in Idaho, and they ended up you know, being 
you know, they had a particular need to put a pattern on an optical fiber, which was back to sort of that original idea that Magasymbol had had. And we, we actually executed, we were able to build that pattern. And the CEO of Certimo, at that point, Certimo had decided to acquire Magasymbol. And the CEO of Certimo was able to get the CEO of Thor Labs interested in talking with us. And they saw how quickly we'd executed on that opportunity uh, from that company. And we'd made a prototype and it had worked and so forth. And I think that's when they decided to acquire the combined Certimo Magasymbol team. And therein lies another kind of success, acquisition. A good product doesn't always come in the form of something out in the market. One of the things that I was unaware of and various people tried to explain it to me during the years that Magasymbol was active was the idea of risk. And I think at some point, as we came close to the end of our grant funding, the various people who had tried to help us had to move on to other things because they couldn't afford to keep, keep pouring effort in. And Certimo saw enough value in what we were doing that they were willing to help us out and to acquire us. And at that point in time, it was, um, it was really Jason Williamson, who's the CEO of Certimo, who is now with Thor Labs, who really orchestrated and helped drive this sort of team toward a successful conclusion with Thor Labs. And obviously Jason worked closely with both the university's technology commercialization office and other venture funding and angel funding entities in the state of South Carolina to try to help get this thing accomplished. So what did Thomas learn when going from researcher to entrepreneur? If you only work on fundamental science problems, you aren't gonna be aware of what the challenges are of a, of a startup company, for example. And, you know, my experience sort of straddling the gap was the company had very difficult time with cash flow, especially at the end of the grants. And you have to make payroll every month and you got employees who, you want to keep them employed or they or you need to encourage them to find a job but you have to you have to pay them every month if you don't have have funds you can't do that whereas on the academic side you may not, you may think oh well, all companies just have lots of money because they're companies companies are wealthy and you know a startup company with two employees you know may have no money at all and so the university was a critical juncture that connected those two sides so that a startup company like Magasymbol could still use resources to work towards that success, but not, not fall apart. And I think Magas, you know, they say what one out of a hundred, uh, sorry, 99 out of a hundred or 90 out of a hundred startups fail. You know, we didn't fail, but we were heavily in debt by the end and on the verge of having to lay off our whole team when we were able to finally get Thor Labs to come in. Without the university sort of allowing us to do that, we would have failed. You don't really realize how risky it is until your bank account is, you know, less than what you need to make payroll for that month. And what are you going to do about it? I think, and, I, and that's something that the university's consultant really helped me, you know, understand over time. And without that sort of experience with those people, I wouldn't have realized that. Now, I think there is still the need to get more of that back into the academic side so that the people on the university side understand the challenges of, of starting a business. And I think that is something that some people get, and not, but not everybody. And what separates invention and innovation? An inventor or a scientist discovers something totally new that's never been seen before. An inventor might make that discovery in an area where it has immediate application. An innovator takes that 
idea and reduces it to practice in a way that maybe is unique and has unique attributes, an entrepreneur figures out how to take some combination of those things and find a place where a customer will actually buy something. And it, it has much more selling in it, which is that sometimes the customer's reluctant to jump on to your new idea and getting the customer to see the potential and then feeding that back into the innovation so it changes so that it satisfies the customer needs. There's sort of two loops here. There's a loop between discovery, innovation, and invention, and a discovery between innovation and entrepreneurism and the customer, and those loops both have to feed back. And I'm much more on the loop of innovation back to discovery and invention. I'm much more comfortable on that loop than I am on the loop that lead that works with the customer and trying to figure out what the customer wants. But they both are necessary if you're gonna have a successful startup company that leads to a successful exit. The more successful it is, you're gonna have people who are in both of those loops and are interacting well. This podcast is part of Scribble, South Carolina's voice of innovation. We celebrate and support innovative activity across the state by connecting people to people. Visit ScribbleSC.com for exclusive interviews, tools, and resources. That's ScribbleSC.com. What I find interesting is the USC Smart State Program and really how it benefits the entire cross-section of people in the process of innovation at USC. So in this case, we see where undergraduates even are given the opportunity to work alongside experts in their field of study. And that only, not only does it identify talent earlier, which, which is great, right? Because then you can nurture that talent and continue to grow that talent in areas that maybe they wouldn't have had opportunity or access to before. Um, but it also creates something kind of special different points of view all coming together to create an end product that maybe wouldn't have been able to be created otherwise. And he clearly talks about how that collaboration from different points of view is instrumental in that innovation process. And then the loops he talked about, yeah. that was I, that was the, a great takeaway for me when he talks about the sort of the overlapping loops of innovation and business coming together. As with everything he said, it has to have that diversity of thought. So... Agreed. Smart state program makes that happen, right? It does make it happen. And then the other part of it, um, the other part of his story that I really like uh, to just touch on here is the commercialization office and how really being able to bring together, you know, the solutions with those resources to make that innovation commercialized that may not have happened for him, or it may not happen for a lot of people in the research space if they don't have those processes in place for them. Um, so it really makes it a lot easier to go through the process and have a likelihood of success within that, you know, ideation to creation to commercialization. And the support and partnership that that, that office is able to bring in too, right? Because he Thomas was very... Um, he, he was he was he very much wanted to underscore the need for uh, business support. You know, he did not know accounting, he did not know legal, he did not know certain things. And, and having an office that helped bring that support for a commercialization uh, a path was was important to him. And, and I think that's probably true for a lot of people in the research space. Right. They're they're yeah. researchers. They're they know their craft. Leaders. Yes, right. exactly. Um, but those other 
things that need to occur in order for a business to form aren't maybe their native, you know, skill set. Their niche. Back over to Thomas. What can researchers learn from him and his journey into entrepreneurship? Most scientists think they know everything. Um, I certainly know I'm probably guilty of that. And I think one of the things that I needed early on, probably more than I realized, was good legal advice. And I think having a, you know, a good corporate attorney who can help your company with a variety of things, everything from agreements you need early on with suppliers, agreements between the university and the company, agreements with these, all these entities that get involved. I think that's a really important part. And it may, you know, it, it, it's not cheap um, and it's really important. While Thomas may need help with the business side of things, there's one trait he feels carried him this far that's incredibly important for every scientist to have. One of the most important traits as a scientist that makes me successful is creativity. And it's it's not at all what you think of. There's no none of the things you do in school. You take exams, you you in the case of physics, you solve problems, and none of these things makes you successful as a creative person. And so that ability to synthesize new ideas, put them together in unique ways, take your your academic learning, your experiential learning, combine them together to do new things. That's a skill that not everyone who is in science actually has, and it takes time and effort to develop that. So for me, I've been fortunate to be a more creative person you know, throughout my career, and that, you know, I have lots of ideas, sometimes too many ideas. I think one of the challenges of leadership is to pick an idea and pick well. And, and so sometimes it's easy to pick the wrong idea. And sometimes it's hard to let go of an idea when you should let go of it. One of the challenging things about, I think about MagAssembl was this need to pivot and to pick a different area to go after, that was not easy to do. And no matter how creative you are, sometimes you pick wrong. Even with creativity in hand, you can't do it without a team, or in Thomas's case, students. One of the things that I'm very proud of is I've worked with somewhere between 25 and 30 undergraduate students in my 17 years as a professor. There are some advanced tasks that graduate students and postdocs can do that undergraduates cannot do. But in general, I think a, a more flat team structure is really important for creativity. I can teach a high school student to self-assemble nanoparticles onto a disk drive. I have no belief that a, a PhD um, has more creativity by definition than a high school student. It's a question of you know, having enough experience and knowledge to leverage that in, innate creativity. So I believe in empowering that creativity across the team. So for me, it's not surprising that an undergraduate could teach a graduate student something about something new. If you've set the right environment, it shouldn't be about necessarily your educational background. It's about what's in your heart and what your drive is and bringing that creative spirit to what you're doing. I think having a, a team of creative professionals who have different backgrounds is really important. And I think in science today, some of the best science is done by teams from multiple scientific disciplines. So people from other disciplines than just your own really can help make you successful. But there's plenty of value in working with students. Teaching helps research in a, in a whole bunch of ways. Students often struggle to learn difficult concepts. And something you've taught many, many times, occasionally you'll have these aha moments where you say, hey, I never thought of this this way. 
and then you use that to help teach better. Those same aha moments in teaching can be put back into your innovative research and you, you start to think about the same problem in different ways. And it's those new ideas for how to think about problems that leads to innovation. I'm Thomas Crawford, and those were my notes on innovation. Thanks for listening to Of Note. I'm Joseph Nutter. And I'm Kim Christ. This is an original production by the South Carolina Department of Commerce and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster, with additional editing support from Cody Langford. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matt Honkinen. Special thanks to Robin Hendricks and Danny Netherland. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at ScribbleSC. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.